When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. On this episode of Most Notorious, the England Family Massacre in 1876, Texas. She is wounded, but she keeps running. She runs back to the house, and at the house, she sees a terrible scene. She sees one of these other men who have the bandanas around their face holding her husband, who's seated in a chair, pulling his head back by his hair and slitting his throat from ear to ear with a knife. And so that scares her terribly. Uh, She hears her husband screaming for help and uh, bleeding out. And so she runs away again. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. I appreciate so much you choosing to spend some of your precious time with me today. Well, I am grateful to have with me Glenn Sample Ely. He is the award-winning author of The Texas Frontier and the Butterfield Overland Mail, 1858-1861, and Where the West Begins, Debating Texas Identity. And he is here to chat about his most recent book, called Murder in Montague, Frontier Justice and Retribution in Texas. Thank you for coming on. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yes. So are the murders that you write about in your book widely known in North Texas still today? No, uh, they were not well known. That Perhaps North Texas is perhaps best known for the hangings at Gainesville during the Civil War in October 1862, which I reference in the book. But uh, this was a a, a gem uh, that I ran across while doing research for my second book. Uh, So before we get into the, the details of the crime itself, I'd love it if you could share with my listeners some of the history of the North Texas frontier 
in the 1870s. What kind of lives did people live there? Sure. So you have to think about um, really from when people first moved out there all the way through the Civil War and then to the 1870s. It's a very unsettled region. There's lots of violence, uh, and that violence comes in the form of uh, Comanche and Kiowa Indian raids, as well as quite a bit of activity from outlaws, rustlers, and vigilantes uh, who were lynching people for various uh, sundry things. So you have really uh, people who have grown accustomed. Uh, you could, I use this phrase in there. They've really experienced post-traumatic stress disorder to a certain degree. You know, that region is starting to get settled uh, in the late 1840s after the Mexican War. And then if you go all the way through the 1870s, you have several years of just chronic, constant lawlessness and just violence. So by, again, by all different types. And you have to remember too that law and order was pretty weak out on the frontier during this time. You know, you might have one sheriff for a county, a flimsy jail where people are always breaking out of. And these counties don't have the funds to have the sheriff go out in the field and track down these uh, people who escape justice. They don't have the money to pay for someone to be gone for two months. And then what happens to the situation back at home while people are gone? The court system has really not taken shape at this time. Typically, 60% of all the people uh, brought to trial escaped justice because the law enforcement people couldn't find them or they couldn't find the witnesses who were present to the crime to testify against them. So uh, it's a very porous law enforcement and very marginal law enforcement at best. So if you're someone who's concerned about getting justice for a crime that's been committed, you don't have the uh, greatest faith in law enforcement or that these people will be brought to trial, that they'll be sent to jail or they'll be executed for the, for the crimes they committed. So most people during this time will just lynch someone rather than uh, wasting time as they think of it by going through the uh, appropriate channels. So it, it really, just think of it as traumatized citizens not knowing when and where uh, they're going to get attacked by Indians, and then also uh, really having to watch what they say and what they do because they could get lynched for that. It, it's just, uh, you're on your own. Um, it's a very, very dangerous time. Well, I, I know when I think of vigilantes, mob violence throughout history, it, it seems to be a lot of the time it's reactionary. There are groups that form quickly, uh, controlled by pure emotion. They disperse afterwards, kind of blend back into the community. But there were some very organized vigilante groups in Texas, groups that had their own names. Right. So uh, in my second book uh, on the Texas frontier and the Butterfield Mail, I document this one group called the Old Law Mob, which was operating during the 1850s up to the Civil War, which is really you have... Um, white rustlers uh, who are in cahoots with demagogues who want to seize power and run operations. So the demagogues turn the other way uh, in terms of the rustlers' activity, and they, these, these people actually gain 
positions of authority in the local militias and the Texas Rangers. Uh, you know, they become captains. They're in charge of units. And while these people are stealing horses and cattle on the frontier, uh, they make sure they're not patrolling in that area at that time. And they literally get away with the most terrible things. Some people called it a reign of terror. And they wrote to Governor Sam Houston saying, can't you do anything about this old law mob and, and these demagogues and these, uh, and these rustlers and outlaws? We're afraid to speak our mind here. Anyone who says uh, the truth or speaks out, they're waylaid and shot or lynched. And I have uh, numerous examples of people uh, being found uh, dead in, uh, in a ravine with a note uh, pinned to their chest that says OLM, and that stands for Old Law Mob. Uh, then during the Civil War, you have, um, you could call union um, sympathizers or people who are conscientious objectors. They, they just wanted to stay out of the war and, and be on their farms and ranches with their families. They didn't want to be in Confederate service. Just leave us out of it. Well, when the Confederates institute the uh, mandatory conscription in uh, 1862, this causes problems and uh, either you're for us or against us. And there were a couple of people who were talking about um, armed insurrection, a handful in this uh, Union League, and they were found out and they lumped all the Union loyalists, you could say, or people who just wanted to be left out of the war. They lumped them in with these uh, handful of agitators and they rounded up uh, roughly like uh, 150 people, uh, pulled them out of bed in the middle of the night. Uh, and then they had a kangaroo court which really wasn't a legal court, and they um, convicted a number of people. And by the time it was all said and done, uh, 42 people were killed in what's known as the Great Hanging at Gainesville in October 62. So uh, that's going on. And then after the war, during Reconstruction, you have big uh, clamoring by these Union people saying, look at what they did during the war. Are we going to get any justice to what these people did terrorizing our communities during the war? They lost the war. Uh, they were traitors. And so now can we get some justice for our loved ones? And uh, no, they didn't get the justice. And this thing was uh, largely uh, swept under the carpet. People were not convicted. And that emboldened the uh, ex-Confederates to take revenge upon these people who had asked for justice and in turn terrorized these people again. So you had people being lynched and rousted uh, for their opinions. Uh, they had uh, these ex-Confederate vigilantes dressing up as Indians and terrorizing these people in their homes. It was just terrible. So there was not law and order during Reconstruction. As a matter of fact, justice just totally disintegrated. So it was just total chaos and bedlam. And then you go on into the 1870s. Remember, the Indians are raiding all during this time. They're they don't care who's in power. They're just raiding the frontier and stealing these uh, horses and cattle, which a lot of them they're taking to New Mexico to sell to New Mexicans in exchange for guns and ammo. Uh, these are the Comancheros. So uh, you can just get, just imagine for over 20 years, just constant chaos, no law and order, uh, with people just literally afraid for their lives. Wow, yeah, that's depressing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really is. So within this environment, there were families who were trying to eke out a living on, on the land. And one of these families was, was headed by a man named England. Uh, he was a reverend. 
Can you talk a bit about the family and what brought them to North Texas to begin with? Sure. Reverend England, in 1876, he's 82 years old. Uh, His first wife, uh, with whom he had eight children, she has died recently. So he uh, married his next door neighbor in uh, Whitesboro, Texas, Selena. And Selena brings her children from her family to to the package. And I should say that Reverend uh, uh, William England is a is a Methodist minister, and he he has the widespread uh, support, respect, and affection of the uh, neighboring community. So when this event takes place, uh, you have Selena's daughter Susie, and then you have two of her sons, Isaiah and uh, Harvey, and these are all children from her first marriage to Billington Taylor, uh, when she's living there in Whitesboro, both her and her next door neighbor, Reverend England, they both have lost their spouses at this time. Uh, and they are recently married when they move over to Grayson County. So in 1875, Selena buys some land in the neighboring county of uh, Montague. Uh, and she buys a parcel of land, 160 acres, Then they have a very nice house built on this land. And by 1876, the summer of 1876, they're living in their new home. And by all intents, uh, things things have quieted down in terms of Indian raids uh, because in 1875, the previous year, the last of the uh, Comanche Indians surrendered and agreed to go on to the reservation at Fort Sill, which is now at Lawton, Oklahoma. So People are feeling less stressed about Indian raids. They're still traumatized by the violence on the frontier, and the uh, vigilante activity is still uh, quite active at this time. And Montague County actually has a a very active league. Uh, It's a very active vigilante group called, ironically, the Law and Order League, Uh, Law and Order in whose opinion, I guess. But by the summer of 1876, this Law and Order League has killed 14 people. So uh, you can imagine that people are still quite on edge in uh, Montague County when the uh, England family has moved over there. So it looks on the surface as though the England family has this very happy life, right? New land, a brand new house, a new start. Yes. But the area that they have moved into is an area where there has been some conflict between neighbors. Right. Absolutely. The black and white photos in the book don't do justice, but this really is idyllic pastoral landscape, bucolic, you could say. It is just beautiful rolling hills with nice streams, very fertile land, ideal for growing cotton and corn and and other crops. So it, it actually is for raising livestock. Uh, it's a fantastic area for that. And I was uh, very impressed by just how beautiful uh, the place is. So they move in there and things are going swimmingly. They have on to their south on the southern border of their property is Denton Creek. And Denton Creek separates the property to the south, which is owned by a family, Ben and Rhoda Krebs. Ben had moved into the area uh, during the Civil War some of the other counties in the area had become depopulated uh, and it wasn't safe to live there anymore. So uh, some of the citizens had forded up, literally 
creating this system of, you know, you're, you create these little forts in a town uh, where you all protect each other. So Montague was one of these areas where people forted up and uh, Ben Krebs moved up there from Young County where he was running a staged up uh, and he joined the uh, Texas Rangers and was active in patrolling against Indians for several years. While he's in Montague County, he, he meets Rhoda Savage um, and her husband Wiley had uh, died in 1864 and she had had several ch children with Wiley. And so they're the neighbors to the south, Ben and Rhoda Krebs. And then also on the other side, you could really say to the northwest uh, is another family that has also moved in very recently, uh, the Musics. And John Music actually grew up in uh, Montague County. His uh, father had moved there after getting a divorce uh, from his wife in Arkansas. And so William Music had moved to Montague County and was homesteading 160 acres in Montague County in 1860, where he was living with uh, his son, John Music. Uh, and he had also remarried and had an 18-year-old wife at that time. Now, John Music, excuse me, his dad, William Music, uh, goes AWOL from the Texas Rangers during the Civil War uh, when these families are forded up in Montague, and he just abandons the family. Uh, and his 18-year-old bride, uh, Elizabeth, petitions the governor and says, we need help here. You know, uh, we have no frontier protection and we're just forded up here and uh, I'm left here all, all alone with my kids. So uh, John Music grows up with his father absent at this point. Now, the interesting thing about this land that um, William Music was homesteading, by Texas law, you have to homestead the land for three years or else you don't get title or patent to it and it reverts back to being open land. Now, William Music didn't fully homestead the land. And in fact, it did revert back. And later on, Thomas Savage, he, he uh, homestead, homesteaded this land later and got patent and title to it. And he, he later sold this land to Selena, England. So getting back to the matter at hand, John Music was resentful, uh, somehow formed in his mind illogically that this land, in fact, had belonged to his father and he got ripped off. Now, he didn't. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is that his dad failed to complete the terms of the agreement, which was to live on the land for three years. But again, I don't know what the matter with John Music was, but he got it in his head that the land had been stolen from him and his family. So he has a resentment against the Englands from the get-go. And it's interesting that he's living in East Texas and all of a sudden, he just decides to move back to the area uh, in 1876 and settle right next to the property that his dad was homesteading. And I don't know how he thought he was going to get title to the land, but uh, that's where he moved. So you had uh, these are the two primary players that are living next to the Englands are the Krebs to the south and the Musics to the northwest. And they're all in adjacent parcels. And I should say that Thomas Savage, who sold the land to Selena, England, uh, he was, and this is where it gets complicated, but Thomas Savage was the son of Wiley Savage, uh, who was Rhoda Krebs' first husband. So he is the son-in-law of Rhoda Krebs, 
uh, and Ben Krebs. Uh, but he lives right next door to them. So they're all family and they're all living in the area together. I hope that made sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah. <laughs> so to add to this, Ben Krebs is having some serious problems, at least in his own mind, um, with the England family. Absolutely. So during 1876, you know, this, these are subsistence farmers and ranchers there. So we grow enough to support our family for the most part. And we have, you know, dairy cattle and hogs and uh, to support our family too. So uh, our crops are, you know, you could say our lifeblood. And you have some of the hogs from the England property keep getting through the fence and uh, are crossing over and uh, messing with uh, Ben Krebs's cornfield uh, and eating the corn in there and trampling it down. Uh, and this has happened a number of times. And Krebs has asked England to keep his hogs on his side of the property. So during the summer of 1876, you have an altercation at the fence line between these two property owners, typical of what happens today. And Ben Krebs hears a bunch of hogs squealing and he comes up to the fence to investigate uh, and he sees these uh, wooden uh, slats in the fence, which have been you know, broken and are smashed and these hogs have been getting through again. And uh, he sees uh, Reverend England, again, 82 years old and his uh, 56-year-old wife, Selena, and one of her children from the first marriage, Harvey Taylor. They're there at the fence line trying to uh, fix these uh, fence slats. And uh, Ben Krebs comes up there and he just loses it. He picks up one of the fence slats and he waves it menacingly at, uh, you know, Reverend England and Selena and says, damn it, I'm just, I'm just tired of uh, your hogs getting into my into my corn crop and, and uh, ruining my corn crop. And, uh, you know, damn you, if this happens again, I'm going to kill you. And he says it. It's, it's a fact. He does. So afterwards, he, he goes with uh, the son, Harvey, uh, and they go down to Denton Creek and they visit. And he said, you know, I have nothing against you personally, but, you know, your, your, your stepdad's allegedly a Christian man, a minister. And if this is the way he does his neighbors, then I have no use for him. He says, you know, hell is boiling over with men like him. You know, he's not a very Christian man if, if this is the way he treats his neighbors. And then after that, uh, Ben has really got a burr in his saddle, you might say. He also, uh, he's on the road in between Montague and uh, a neighboring town right, right outside his house. And he's talking to some people on the road and uh, one of Selena's son, Isaiah, uh, he's walking by in the road with another chap. And he, he tells this man, you know, he, I'd really like to clean him up, which you could take as a veiled reference at violence. Then a third instance uh, in the town of Montague, which is the county seat, Ben Krebs is in the blacksmith shop and he's showing the, the owner, another chap there who's shoeing a horse. He's showing how he threatened uh, Reverend England with a fence post and telling them about this. And he's angry because the Englands have actually filed assault charges on him now. And so there's the potential for him having to go to prison and pay a fine. And in front of the audience there, who interestingly includes a certain gentleman named John Music, he happens to be a witness to this. And he hears 
along with the other guys, Ben Krebs saying, I'm going to kill those folks before I have to go to prison, I can tell you that. So now uh, he's on record three times threatening uh, the Englands or the children. So this case is set to go to trial right at the beginning of September in 1876. When we come back, details on how the England family was murdered. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Back again. Okay, uh, that, that's a good setup here. So on August 26th, 1876, one of Selena's grandsons, Harvey Taylor, um, it's evening, and he's getting ready to sleep on the front porch. Yes. And suddenly he sees three figures in the dark approaching the home. Right. So uh, it's really hot in, in, at the end of August in Texas during the summer. You could call it oppressive. No air conditioning, no fans back then, and it is just plain hot inside of a house. Uh, you know, it could still well be in the 90s and high humidity in North Texas at this time. And the sky is clear with a half moon. And it's the road between uh, Decatur and Montague, which passes right in front of the England house. And the, the fence uh, is right there in the, the gatepost. So uh, Harvey tells the family that They've just finished saying their prayers. It's probably about uh, 9 to 10 o'clock. 
they were sitting on the porch in the evening after dinner, trying to catch a breeze. And Selena's son, Isaiah, is about to get married. They're talking about the uh, pending nuptials. Uh, Susie is there, another daughter, uh, and Harvey also. Again, all children from Selena's first marriage. Uh, they say their prayers. Uh, they turn in to go to bed. Uh, all the family goes inside except for Harvey, who grabs a, a mattress and pulls it out on the porch and says, you know, I'm going to sleep out here. It's just too hot. So he's out there on the porch. He's just settling down, and he sees these three men approach on the road. Now, they approach the gate uh, to the walkway to the house, to the front porch. They're all wearing bandanas around their heads. Two of them have bandanas covering their face. One of them just has them tied, has his bandana tied around his head. Uh, it's not covering his face. This man with just tied around his face, he comes through the gate. The other two who have the bandanas uh, hiding their face, they crouch low behind the fence like they're trying to hide while the other guy walks up to the porch. He comes up on the porch and he, he uh, threatens Harvey Taylor with this pistol and says, uh, God damn it, get in the house. Don't want any trouble. Uh, and he you know, threatens him. And so Harvey goes on in the house. And then these other two guys who are hiding there, they come in afterwards. So Harvey walks in uh, to the front hallway, uh, which separates the two bedrooms. In one bedroom to the left is where Isaiah is uh, sleeping for the night. And then the bedroom to the right is where uh, Selena and Reverend England are sleeping. I'm not sure where Susie was going to, which bedroom she was going to be in. But in any case, Harvey walks into the hallway. And again, this intruder, I'll call him, where the pistol comes in right behind him. And the intruder looks to the left in the bedroom. The doorway's open and he sees Isaiah and he goes, God damn it, I told you I'd kill you. And he shoots him right there. At this point, Harvey freaks out and bolts for the back door because he is thinking, obviously, that I'm going to be next. He just shot my brother. So he bolts out the back door, and as he's running away, he hears uh, women screaming and a number of additional gunshots. Uh, Harvey is scared for his life, as might be imagined. He runs to get help. He doesn't go to the Krebs or the music property. He goes to another neighbor who's about uh, half a mile away. His name's Dr. Stinson. And he says, uh, Doc, uh, there's, there's a terrible murder going on at our house. Uh, I, I need you to come and help us. So the doctor and Harvey do go back to the property sometime later, and they discover a terrible tableau. I should say, um, while Harvey is away, there's a terrible situation going on where Selena and her daughter, Susie, are scared again for their lives. And they follow suit with Harvey and they run out the back door uh, and try and get over the fence into a pasture and run away. Uh, but they're not able to do this fully. And the same man who shot Isaiah and ran after Harvey, he's chasing them now. Uh, and he's firing shots at them, probably from a Colt Navy revolver the daughter starts screaming to uh, the mother while they're being chased. She says, fact, mother, old Ben Krebs is trying to kill us. So she identifies this man by name, who she thinks this killer is. And again, remember, Krebs has 
threatened the England family on three occasions now. So that's not a, a big stretch to imagine who that would be. But again, they're running at night with their backs turned to this man. So they're what kind of a you know glimpse or a glance they're getting at this person, we don't really know, but they've identified uh, the person as such. So the pursuer shoots Susie dead and she goes, mother, I've been shot. I'm, I'm dying. You know, old Ben Krebs has killed me. So Susie collapses to the ground at the fence. She did not make it into the pasture. At this point, Selena uh, runs back towards the house trying to lose the pursuer. And the man is uh, firing shots at her as well. She is wounded, but she keeps running. She runs back to the house. And at the house, she sees a terrible scene. She sees one of these other men who have the bandanas around their face, holding her husband, who's seated in a chair, pulling his head back by his hair and slitting his throat from ear to ear with a knife. And so that scares her terribly. Uh, She hears her husband screaming for help and uh, bleeding out. And so she runs away again to try and go get help. Once again, this man starts pursuing her again. It's a crazy scene. And he, he shoots her again, and uh, she collapses and passes out. So she wakes up, I don't know how long, maybe an hour later. And it's interesting to note that they could have killed her. They could have seen if she was still alive, that in fact she was still breathing. But they left her there, uh, the attackers, and they left the scene. And she awakes, she realizes she's badly wounded, and she goes to get help. Interestingly, she goes over to the music house, a quarter mile, half a mile away to get help. And John Music isn't there, but his wife, Luna, is. And of course, she takes her in and lays her down on the bed and tries to minister to her. Then John shows up uh, and she tells him to go get help. So uh, he goes, gets help from uh, another party. And then Selena tells Luna Music that she has been shot by uh, Ben Krebs and several other men. Then uh, later on, the person, the doctor that Harvey Taylor went to get help from, he shows up there too. She tells uh, Dr. Stinson that Ben Krebs uh, attacked her family with two other men and killed her husband and the other people, and that you know he, he was the one who fatally shot her. Uh, and, he, and she identifies Ben Krebs as the man chasing her and her daughter Susie. So we have we have that situation. Then Harvey Taylor goes with uh, Dr. Stinson over to the England home, and they they find Susie uh, gunned down, dead in the uh, walkway. They find uh, the walkway to the home. They find uh, Isaiah Taylor out in the road that leads to Montague, uh, sprawled out on the road. He's been shot dead. And they find Reverend England laying in uh, two pools of blood inside the house and on the walls, on the doorframe of one of the bedrooms, uh, you can see uh, they found these handprints, which just slide down the doorframe, just this bloody handprint just sliding down to the bottom where he then collapsed in these pools of blood. So it's a terrible scene. Again, Dr. Stinson waited outside while Harvey went in. Uh, and he, you know, he lit a candle and went in. So he saw all this by candlelight, 
Uh, it's probably mid-morning, two to three in the morning uh, on Sunday morning at this time, August 27th, when he discovers uh, the situation. So then you have more developments the following day on Sunday morning. But it seems to be a pretty cut and dry case, right? Uh, Selena, even on her deathbed, is lucid and very adamant that her killer was Ben Krebs. She, she says he was so close to her that she could feel his whiskers. Right. So the next morning, you have what we would call the DA. He's the county attorney, Montague County attorney, Avery Lenoir uh, Matlock. He's a young lad uh, in his early 20s. You don't want to say he's necessarily green, but he's not a well-seasoned county attorney. Uh, This is, shall we say, his first big uh, political job, uh, first time as a high-profile position. So he he conducts uh, an investigation of the crime scene with Dr. Stinson and a posse of other gentlemen. Early in the morning, it should be noted that they move Selena back to her home at the England home from the music house. She's, she's now back in her house and a crowd of people, uh, nosy parkers, uh, rubberneckers, are, a large crowd is assembled outside, sniffing around, wanting to know what's going on. She's inside one of the bedrooms and she's visited by uh, County Attorney Matlock, uh, who says, well, tell me what happened. So she uh, relates the deal about her and Susie being chased. And she gives what's called a uh, deathbed declaration, which is she makes a statement knowing full well that she's going to die. Dr. Stinson has examined her. She's been shot through the chest. Uh, it's a fatal wound. Uh, he tells her and Matlock that you know she's not going to live much longer. So this is the situation there. And so she makes... Uh, a declaration to Matlock and Stinson about what happened. And she identifies Ben Krebs as her her assailant. So Matlock says, well, wait a minute. Uh, Krebs is outside here uh, with another man. So she brings in Krebs and says, is this the man who, who, who did this? And she goes, absolutely. Uh, I'd know him anywhere. I put my hand in his whiskers uh, and he had that same white hat. He was wearing that same white hat that he's holding now when he attacked me. And we, we should talk about those two, two points later on because those are contested. So she, she makes this deathbed declaration. And in fact, the next day on Monday, uh, she expires. So that, that deathbed declaration is, is what convicts Krebs later on. Uh, Matlock does a survey of the crime scene. What he finds is important they find three sets of tracks in the fields leading from uh, the England home down across the river, uh, Denton Creek, to the Krebs house. And within 50 yards of the Krebs house, the footprints disappear uh, in the tall grass and and, uh, the crew loses the tracks. But they have this plain trail of three, three footprints leading for all this way from the crime scene to Krebs's house. So again, this would seem to indicate uh, the guilt of Krebs and these other gentlemen. And uh, Matlock also does, he measures the footprints, these boot prints of these tracks in the trails leading to the Krebs house. He does not bring uh, the other gentleman with Krebs into the house to be identified by Selena 
uh, and this man's name is James Preston. Uh, he had been spending the night before at Krebs's house. He was a very close personal friend of Ben Krebs. Uh, he owned adjoining property. He was also a farmer, uh, and, and they hung out a lot. So he had had dinner there, and he had spent the night there. Another gentleman who was at that house that night was Rhoda Krebs's brother. And again, you can't get confused. These are two different families with the same last name. Rhoda, uh, her maiden name was Taylor, and the land that she lived on was owned by William Hampton Taylor, uh, and she was the daughter of Taylor. So Matlock assumed that since three men had done the crime, uh, Ben Krebs had been identified by Selena England as one of the killers. Therefore, he had no proof, but just said, well, three men did the crime. These two spent the night there. Uh, they must have been involved in this deal. So he arrests all three, hauls them off to the jail in Montague. Now he measures their boot prints while they're in jail in Montague uh, and compares them with the measurements that he took in the field at the crime scene and says, well, these look to be a close match. One thing he did not do, which is really important, is he didn't make a cast print. Law enforcement people had been making cast imprints of uh, boot prints and footprints at this time for a number of years. So it wasn't anything new, but Matlock didn't do this. Uh, and he just made his own supposition that these looked like the same boot prints uh, measurement wise. Therefore, I'm going to say that they were. But in fact, he did not have the hard data on that. With uh, He could have actually made cast imprints and then taken the suspect's boots and put them in there. But he failed to do that. Now, remember at this time, too, uh, there is no blood analysis. It doesn't exist. Uh, they're even not too sure whether uh, blood is from an animal or a human at this time. Also, same for uh, bullet analysis, okay? Uh, they really can't tell uh, if it came from the same gun at this time. They can only say that this is the same type of bullet that came from that gun, but they don't have the barrel grooves and the imprints and they did recover a number of pistol balls, uh, you know, coming from revolvers. Again, this Colt Navy revolver, which is very common at this time, uh, they do recover two bullets, pistol balls from the crime scene, but they can't say, in fact, which, which uh, revolvers they came from. And they do find a, a bloody shirt, right? And a revolver in the Krebs house. Yes, and so this bloody shirt... Uh, comes back to haunt them, as does a Colt Navy revolver found in the house. Uh, and this is where uh, you could say that uh, Rhoda Krebs does not help uh, her husband. So again, Dr. Stinson is in charge of the, the crew that investigates the crime scene. He goes into the Krebs house and says, I, I need to search your house. I have authority of the county attorney to do so. And they found, Dr. Stinson uh, found a, uh, it's under controversy, again, who found this shirt. Let me put it this way. Someone found a shirt in the attic of the Krebs house, and it was bloody and rolled up into a ball. Uh, you could say, you could use the word hidden in the attic. Uh, why would you put a shirt, roll it in a ball, and put it up in the attic? Uh, they have a, a clothes hamper where uh, dirty clothes are put. Uh, matter of fact, the uh, daughter goes and looks in the clothes hamper 
Uh, can't find a shirt that Krebs was wearing in the night of the, uh, when the murder took place uh, because uh, he, he was identified by some people as having a bloody shirt. Other people said he had a clean shirt. So uh, someone finds this shirt rolled up in a ball in the attic. It's admittedly very strange why it's up in the attic. Then uh, Dr. Stinson asks Rhoda, say, do you have any um, pistols or any, any firearms on the, pre- on the premises? And uh, Ben Krebs' wife, Rhoda, says, uh, no, I just have a broken uh, gun, a revolver here, and he shows this old uh, pistol that doesn't work. Uh, and then another one that's rusty or beat up and clearly wasn't a gun in question. Uh, she goes, that's all there are. That's all I know about. So Dr. Stinson searches around the home. Uh, lo and behold, in fact, there is another gun, which is rolled up in another piece of cloth uh, in a, a book cabinet. Uh, and it's a Colt Navy revolver that has been recently fired. One bullet is missing from the chamber. Now, her son, uh, Rhoda's son from her first marriage, Johnny, who was also at the house, both children were at the house sleeping over because that's where they lived when, when the murders occurred. And the son says that that was my gun and I was out hunting with, with Ben Krebs, uh, my stepdad, the night before, uh, and I fired one bullet from, the, uh, from this revolver when we were out hunting turkeys. So that's why, it, you know, it smells like it's been fired and that's uh, where, where the bullet came from. And I had just traded for this revolver recently uh, and it's my gun and I put it in that book cabinet. And, and his, his mom, Rhoda, says, well, gosh, I didn't know that. I had no idea that this gun was here. So you do, in, in fact, have a bloody shirt that's found. You have this Colt Navy revolver that's found in, in the Krebs home. And it looks suspicious. There's no two ways about it. And Rhoda gives a thoroughly muddled account of it uh, during, during the trial. Uh, and the daughter doesn't help matters much because they say, well, she found the shirt. And she goes, I didn't find any shirt. I went to the clothes hamper and it wasn't in there. Someone found the shirt, but it wasn't me. So th- those two issues about the gun and the shirt at the Krebs house are never really satisfactorily explained. So in this tight-knit community, word spreads like wildfire, and people are in an uproar, and they are out for blood, and they want to see justice meted out quickly. Right. So here we go again with the uh, vigilantes, the group that have been operating there, the Law and Order League. They're shut down just really like a month and a half uh, before these murders take place. But there, there's definitely still not law and order there. And the county attorney, again, is one man and you have uh, one, one sheriff, Sheriff Perkins. And, and that's basically it. Uh, so there is the th- constant threat throughout their incarceration and then throughout their trials. The three men, again, Ben Krebs, James Preston and Aaron Taylor, all throughout this time that they're going to be broken from jail by an angry mob and that they're going to be lynched. Because again, as we said before, what what faith do you have in a criminal justice system that these people are actually going to be tried, convicted, and then hung if they're guilty? Uh, there, there is none. So there, there's a clamor for a quick quick trial, you know, a quick sentencing and, uh, sentencing and let's dispatch these people. So very quickly, 
Ben Krebs, here's, here's a thing I did not know about. Do you know that any, any prisoner, while they're incarcerated for no matter how long they are in, they're in jail, they have to pay for their own food and lodging. Uh, they have to, they, the sheriff has to be reimbursed. Uh, these are poor families. They have no money, let alone uh, to pay for legal expenses. And what happens over the course of these trials and uh, while these cases are settled is that the uh, Krebs family, which includes Aaron Taylor, because uh, he's uh, Rhoda's uh, brother, and then James Preston, they're all bankrupted, bled dry, uh, having to sell their land to pay for attorney's fees to represent them during these trials and during the appeals as you know, for attorney fees, as well as for paying uh, the county for their incarceration. It's just a terrible setup. So Ben Krebs is quickly put on trial while the other two people, uh, Aaron Taylor and James Preston, are granted continuances, which means that their trials are put on hold. But Ben Krebs, he's a, the alleged ringleader and people want him dispatched quickly. So he's uh, put on trial in Montague County. It's not a kangaroo court like the Gainesville hangings, but uh, the county attorney, Matlock, is uh, very persuasive. He, he, he gins up the local feeling and prejudices them. It, it's at a fever pitch. And how do I know it's at a fever pitch? Because the trials for uh, the Brown gang, who were part of this Law and Order League, part of this vigilante group that was shut down, they are brought to justice at the same time. Uh, and the, and the uh, judge is the same judge hearing all of these trials. And he grants a change of venue for uh, the Law and Order League suspects because the, the feeling in Montague County is at a, quote, fever pitch, and they could not get a fair trial in Montague County. But nonetheless, uh, Ben Krebs is put on trial right away. And the trials back then don't they don't they take under a day he's found guilty the same day the jury goes to deliberate they took exactly 5 minutes to deliberate uh and then uh passed a sentence of death from hanging capital murder uh in the first degree so he is uh, sentenced to die and then he appeals his case the appeal is granted because in their rush to judgment they screwed up some technical points uh, and the Court of Appeals says, uh, no, we've got to put this back uh, and have you do this correctly and have these technical points uh, resolved. One of the things was these people are illiterate, a lot of them, and they spelled uh, sentence by death, death by hanging. They spelled death wrong, D-E-T-H. And they didn't specify whether it was murder in the first degree or second degree. So th- these technicalities knocked it back uh, and they have a second second trial later on. In the meantime, uh, the other two gentlemen are tried and convicted as well. James Preston does get a change of venue, pointing out that Krebs didn't have a chance for a fair trial and that he wouldn't either. So they move uh, Preston's trial over to Gainesville. Guess who the judge is? Same judge, Judge Carroll, uh, in the 16th court. He hears this case as well. Uh, The jury uh, is highly prejudiced, finds him guilty quickly. Uh, the case is appealed. He wins an appeal. So his case is put on hold. Aaron Taylor, the third gentleman, he, he is a teenager at the time of the uh, murders. 
So he is found guilty very quickly. Again, all these trials one day, uh, guilty as charged, and he's murdered in the first degree. Judge Carroll cannot sentence him to death by hanging because he was a teenager. By law, the maximum sentence is life at hard labor at Huntsville Prison, uh, and he is sent down quickly. He, he appealed uh, to no avail. He was sent down and begins serving his sentence at Huntsville uh, in, in 1878. So in the meantime, you have uh, second trials for uh, Krebs and Preston, guilty, murder, first degree, death by hanging. Judge, uh, Judge Carroll uh, sentences them to be hanged. You know, James Preston, uh, they're in the courtroom, uh, Preston and Krebs, and uh, uh, Judge Carroll asked them if they'd like to make a statement. Uh, James Preston says, I'm innocent. And then Krebs goes, uh, there's really no point uh, making a statement. It wasn't a fair trial. And the, the people who are responsible are not present in this courtroom. In other words, the real perpetrators have gotten away. And this was a case in their appeals, which was, uh, I'll say quickly that Judge Carroll sentences them to death by hanging in April 1880, uh, and they're going to hang with a third man named Nossinger. And when they go back to appeal this to the Texas Court of Appeals, uh, they point out that James Preston has no motive to kill the England family. Why is this? Because his wife, Martha, died in February of 1876, a few months before the murders. Guess who was the person who officiated her funeral, Reverend England. Guess who took care of her when she was dying and sick? Susie England and her mother, Selena, ministered to her, brought her meals and took care of her while she was dying in, in bed. And then when she did die, Reverend England kindly did the funeral. So what motive would uh, James Preston have against the England family? He has no motive at all. In fact, it's brought up by the defense that he is good friends with the England family uh, and absolutely was on good terms. So here's the funny thing. The Court of Appeals, uh, the guy who, the justice that wrote the opinion, instead of sticking to the legal theory and legal facts, he, he presents his own opinion and says, well, we really can't fathom the minds of some people. It causes them to do terrible deeds. Uh, and some some people are just, malicious murderers, and, and we really can't understand the human psyche. And he again goes to the fact that they were at the house of the night of the murder. Therefore, uh, James Preston, he and, and again, Aaron Taylor, they have to be guilty because three men did the deed. Three men were at the house the night of the crime. Uh, no logic to it, not sticking to the facts of the case, that there was no motive. And he's going again by Selena's deathbed declaration, which Judge Carroll had ad admitted during the trials that he instructed the juries that you will look at Selena's deathbed declaration. Uh, that is evidence in this case. Uh, and she said adamantly multiple times to different people that Ben Krebs was the guy who did it. And Susie, her deathbed declaration, you know, her declaration after being shot was old Ben Krebs. You know, they brought this up again and again and again. It was brought up that James Preston, he, uh, he had no motive. The judge didn't care about that. Another very interesting point here is that during the appeals, evidence was brought to light that there were people who tried to testify during the trials that 
there were other possible suspects and that three gentlemen wanted to come and give testimony to this point that, in fact, other people had motives and a very good case for committing these murders. But Judge Carroll squelched it. He didn't want to allow any time for these people to travel to Gainesville. He was not going to delay the trials. And he went ahead with the trials and said, no, I am not going to allow their testimony. So key points. This was brought up during the appeals. And again, the guy who wrote the appeal, the chief justice says, I understand this case, but we're going to stick with the suspects we have. We're not getting to get into speculation. These people were identified. We're going to go with them. So uh, you could say that the Court of Appeals uh, had no interest in overturning this. Very key point here. So Court of Appeals, remember, we're at an uh, early days here with the Texas court system. If I have two sets of convictions, so four juries have heard the cases at this point. Excuse me, five juries have heard it. Uh, Aaron Taylor did not get uh, his appeal granted. So five juries have heard the cases and convicted five times. So that's 60 people, 60 men have, have convicted this. So is, is a judge, is Judge Carroll going to go against 60 men? Are the Court of Appeals going to go against 60 men, even though some of the case, some of the facts in the case are suspect uh, and that there may be other people involved? No, they're not going to because typically they do not want to upset the apple cart, which is at this time, there's not a lot of faith in the court system. If I as a judge or I as appeal judges, as we as appeal judges, if we overturn the verdict, again, these people local on the scene are going to say that, see, I told you, we can't, we can't trust the justice system because they let these people go scot-free once again. You know, we allowed the system to happen. They were tried, they convicted, uh, appealed, and they still let these people go. So what's going to happen? They're going to go back to lynching people and just shooting them on the spot. So these people in the justice system really want to get some sort of faith in the local community, uh, communities across Texas that you can trust uh, your local people to try and convict and send these people to prison. So this is why they are loath to overturn these convictions. Nonetheless, there is significant enough doubt that the governor, Governor Roberts, decides to commute the sentences. Right. So what happens is, but you have uh, Krebs and Preston uh, who are scheduled to be hung with this third gentleman, Nofsinger, uh, at the end of April in 1880. At the very last minute, just a few, uh, few days before uh, they're going to be hung in Gainesville, Judge Carroll, now remember Judge Carroll has overseen all five of these trials. He's heard the same evidence over and over and over again. And at the last minute, he writes the judge of Texas, Oren Roberts, a letter and says, I have some serious doubts about the evidence. These gentlemen may be innocent. He doesn't say that. In fact, they are innocent. He says he has, he harbors grave reservations. So Governor Roberts studies the case uh, he's got he's got all the evidence there, uh, and he agrees with with uh, Judge Carroll that there's some problems here. But he, like Judge Carroll, has reservations, but he's not convinced. So, the question 
uh, is whether or not he should commute these sentences to life at hard labor in Huntsville. Governor Roberts agrees with Judge Carroll that there, there's some problems in the case enough to warrant uh, commuting the sentences. So he commutes the sentences a few days before the schedule hanging. Governor Roberts knows the, uh, the lay of the land uh, with the vigilante activity and how weak the, the justice system is. Uh, and he knows that he, he should get uh, Preston and Krebs out of town in Gainesville, out of that jail before he announces the commutations because otherwise there's going to be trouble. So he tells uh, the jailer and he tells the people who are running the uh, Texas state prison system, uh, and these are contractors, they leasing out the prison to uh, contractors at this time to come and get these guys out of the Gainesville jail uh, and get them on the train down to Huntsville immediately, which happens. They're taken on the train to Huntsville and then he announces the commutations and boom, a local crowd more than 100 people descend upon the county jail and the train station to get these two guys and to lynch them. They are just in a fever pitch. So you can see again the lay of the land that there is always this threat of vigilante activity and mob rule at this time because the court system and the justice system is so weak. So uh, they are spirited away on the train, taken down to Huntsville, and the third man, Nofsinger, is left to uh, be hung, and he doesn't contest. He, he admits that he's flat out guilty of uh, killing a person. So that's that's where we are. So Krebs and Preston, they end up spending time in a in a pretty nasty prison, but they become model prisoners, both of them, don't they? Yes. So you have to. I'll just set the background really quick. People who are imprisoned in the Texas state prison system uh, at this time period, it, it is really uh, a dark, a dark place, and and dark things happen. You have guards systematically beating prisoners who give them any type of trouble, or just beating them because they want to. Life at hard labor means that you work in these sweatshops all day long, uh, twelve hours a day, in pretty pretty rough conditions. Prison boards characterize the food uh, as being nauseous instead of uh, sustaining your life. Uh, it actually makes you sick because it's so revolting. You have people who are uh, stay in prison all the time, like Preston, uh, Krebs, and Taylor, because they're lifers with life sentences. Uh, but then the people, let's say, Eric, that you have a sentence of 20 years, you are put in these uh, prison work camps outside the prison where the conditions are even worse, where the guards just beat you like a drum, uh, where you don't get a change of clothes for 10 weeks, where this is true. I quoted in the book where uh, the meat you get is the butt flank of a pig with uh, the pig's excrement still on the backside there, uh, and the meat is not even fully cooked, and it's lukewarm. And this is what you serve for dinner. And there's maggots and all sorts of stuff in the food, uh, in the cornbread, uh, the beans is just terrible. So this is what you're forced to eat. And again, uh, beaten all the time. And they have prison investigations that go on. You know, they'll have an uh, investigation every year or so, and they'll interview prisoners. Uh, 
tell me, uh, what's it like being in prison here? Uh, and if you think I'm going to speak the truth, you're crazy. Because if, if I speak the truth, I'm a rat. And once these investigators are gone, I'm beaten uh, to within an inch of my life. And then I'm uh, really uh, deprived of uh, privileges in prison, and I pay for speaking the truth. So do you think I'm going to tell an investigator what's happening? No. The people who run the prison, again, they're running it, and they're getting prison labor to uh, support their, their operations. The people who run the prison uh, have sugarcane uh, timber operations, uh, and they're using uh, prison labor uh, as really slave labor in their fields to support themselves. They make enormous profits. And if a prisoner dies, so what? They just get another prisoner to replace them and they bury them there in their property. You, you just can't believe it. So Krebs and Preston and Taylor are lucky in a way that they're not in these gangs, these prison camps outside the prison, but it's bad enough in the prison. And you have one prison guard that I mentioned who uh, is particularly vicious and he goes after these prisoners, uh, and he's mentioned in account after account. Prisoners are in the prison hospital. They're sick. And he calls them malingerers. He said, get your butt out of bed there. You get out there and start hoeing the, the crops. And I don't want to hear any back talk from them. And they're sick in the hospital. They're out, they die out on these prison work gangs. Uh, they were, in fact, sick. Uh, but then he falsifies the records, allegedly, this is what the prisoners claim, and says that, oh, they were fine when they went out in the morning. Yeah, it must have been something they ate. This is true. True stuff. Alleging the prisoners, that's what they say. Uh, we only have their account and the account of, of the overseer. So terrible conditions. Uh, black prisoners are beaten even more than white prisoners. And again, you don't report what happens? If you do, you're beaten even worse. Uh, and a lot of people die in prison and they're buried there at the cemetery, which is called Peckerwood Hill. Uh, and in fact, Aaron Taylor uh, does die there. This teenager who's now 20 years old, he dies two years after being imprisoned of uh, consumption, which, we, which is known as TB today, tuberculosis. So here is this poor kid who dies at age 20 uh, he's incarcerated at age 17, uh, and he tells the prison warden when he dies that I did not do this, and neither did Preston and Krebs, and, and the warden believes him. He gives a deathbed confession on his deathbed that he didn't do it. So there's Aaron Taylor dead in 1880, uh, and Ben Krebs and James Preston, who are in prison for a lot longer than that. When we come back, evidence suggests that another trio of men might have had something to do with the England family murders. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? 
Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. From Fort Sumter to the Battle of Gettysburg. From the Emancipation Proclamation to Appomattox Courthouse. From the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Compromise of 1877. From Abraham Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant and William Tecumseh Sherman. To Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. The Civil War and Reconstruction was a pivotal era in American history. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. And we're the hosts of a podcast that takes a deep dive into that era when a war was fought to save the Union and to free the slaves. And when the work to rebuild the nation after that war was over turned into a struggle to guarantee liberty and justice for all Americans. Look for the Civil War and Reconstruction wherever you find your podcasts. And we are back. So... Governor Hogg, he serves a term and near the end of it starts to do his own investigation on the case. And he has some doubts. Well, no. So we have actually, I'll I'll back up here real quick, give you a setup. So Krebs and Preston are in prison uh, for many, many years. We go through a series of five governors here, all the way from uh, Governor Roberts uh, to Governor, Governor Ireland to Governor Ross, to Governor Hogg. So there's four governors, and then later on, another governor, Lubbock, who is on the prison board that investigates pardoning people. He's appointed by Governor Hogg uh, onto the pardon board to help make recommendations. So all told, we have five Texas governors over a two-decade period involved in this case. The case goes on for almost two decades. So the people who come after Governor Roberts. Governor Roberts will not pardon the men. Remember, you have two phases here. First, 
you commute their sentence from a death sentence to life in prison. And then step two is from life in prison to a full pardon and restoring your rights. Now, very, very rarely, just literally a handful of cases, will a governor go straight from a death sentence to an outright pardon. They always do the interim step of a life sentence. Why? Because it acts like a check and balance. You can really uh, see the prisoner's conduct during that time and see if they are a person who is over a period of time. You track them. Should we pardon them or not? And so you, you raise the point that Krebs and Preston are indeed ideal prisoners. Uh, they just model prisoners during their time. And as a matter of fact, uh, you have, I've never heard of a case like this. You have 90 prison guards and employees who recommend pardoning them. I've never heard of a case like that. And then you have this uh, very sadistic guard. He's called sadistic by the prisoners, okay? That's what they say about him. He actually says that I would recommend pardoning them too. Again, he, he doesn't make recommendations very lightly, uh, and I don't know of another case of him recommending a pardon for prisoners that he oversees. So highly, highly unusual. Literally everyone involved in the case in the prison system recommend that a governor pardon him. So we get through uh, several, go several governors. Uh, governor Roberts doesn't pardon them. Governor Roberts, though while he sh he's uh, not sure if they're guilty, he's not sure that they're innocent. So he's sort of in this in-between area. Judge Carroll was the same way. He had serious doubts about their guilt, but he can't state for the for a fact that they're guilty. It's just a it's a complex case. Uh, there's still not all the evidence is on the table. Uh, there's still facts that are hidden from light. We don't know the full story, and so based upon what we have, uh, I don't want blood on my hands and hanging someone who may be innocent. So that's why I commute their sentence, but I don't want to let someone go uh, and pardon them who may in fact be guilty and they get away with it. So that's sort of this half-life or another world that, that we're in. And that's why these subsequent governors do not touch the case. Uh, they just say, we're not going to get involved. Meanwhile, uh, these men are still living their lives at hard labor in the state prison system for a crime they may not have committed. So we get to Governor Hogg. And he gets these cases and he gets people appealing to him as the other governors had appeals made to them. He looks at the evidence and he goes, you know, what's going on here? I, I really want to make sure and I'm going to make a call here one way or the other. I'm not just going to kick the can down the road. These gentlemen are now getting up in age. You know, they're getting close to their 70s. They've worked for almost 20 years in prison. You know, they're, they're nearing the end of their lives. They didn't have the lifespan that we do today. And again, in the Texan, Texas prison system, they're beaten down. They're worn out old men who don't have a lot of years left. And Governor Hogg sees this. So he, he, he says, I'm going to do my own investigation. And it's a funny thing. After time passes, uh, during this investigation, he, he, he runs down these stories about these, uh, these eyewitnesses who said at the time that there's other people involved. And remember, they didn't want other people involved. They didn't want to open up the investigation 
uh, we're going to go with what we got. We're not going to allow those people to come to trial and testify uh, too bad. Uh, well, Governor Hogg's not satisfied with that. He gets his own private personal investigator who actually was involved in the prison system at the time, several years before. And he knows Krebs. He knows Krebs and Preston, this investigator. He, he actually was uh, the deputy uh, superintendent of the prison system. So he knows the case and he knows these guys. He goes to Montague, does his own investigation, and he uncovers uh, some significant information. One, uh, John Music's wife, Luna Music, who was there when Selena came to the house, she uh, amends uh, her testimony uh, with an affidavit. And she says that, in fact, her husband, John, was not there at the house when Selena came there, he didn't arrive till later on. Well, where was he? That's a great question. Okay, then she also says that Selena is there in the house and is talking to her, and that Selena can't identify James Preston as one of her attackers. In fact, she says, no, I'm not sure that he did it. Okay, so Preston's out of the clear. He's in the clear there. Then what's more, Harvey, her son, who escaped from the murders, uh, he shows up at the, Muna, at the music house uh, and he's sitting in the bedroom with Selena and Luna Music. And Harvey says, well, the, the man who did the killing there, in fact, that was John Music. I recognize him by his red beard and mustache. And remember, he had a, he had a, bandana, a bandana around his head. And Selena had made the statement that she recognized Krebs by his whiskers uh, and his white hat that he was holding. Well, in fact, testimony during the trials uh, showed that Krebs was clean shaven on the night of the murders and that, in fact, his white hat that he had holding in his hand didn't match the description that Harvey gave of the murder suspect with a pistol, that this man had a bandana tied around his head, not wearing a white hat, Okay, so, and that he had whiskers. Okay, well, that's not Krebs. Uh, and he identified by name. He goes, no, he said, mother, that, that man was John Music. I saw him. He was leaning down two, two feet away from me uh, when, right before we went into the house. Well, the question arises, why didn't Harvey say this during the trial? And the fact is, is that he told the defense attorneys during the trial the reason I didn't say that is, in fact, I was threatened by vigilantes that if I spoke the truth, I would be killed. Fact. So here we have all of this coming out. Look, we're almost 20 years later, and here's, here are these facts still coming out in the case. Then what's more, uh, Luna Music says that her husband, John Music, had been out hunting that day with another man called Bill Taylor. And who is Bill Taylor? Well, remember, don't get confused by the Taylors here. This is Rhoda Taylor, uh, Ben Krebs' wife. This is her family, uh, and this is her brother, Bill Taylor, was out hunting with uh, John Music on the murders, the day of the murders. What's more, Bill Taylor is an outlaw. Uh, he's at large now. He's wanted for, uh, for horse wrestling. He stole a horse in 1875 from Montague County. Uh, he's been charged, uh, and he skipped the county before he could be arrested. And he's fled over to Indian Territory, now Oklahoma, where he's joined a gang of outlaws 
uh, and they're committing crimes in the area. So here we have Bill Taylor, who is the brother of Ben Krebs's wife, uh, who's been implicated in this murder. And he's been hanging out with John Music on a day in question, uh, shooting guns. And there's a third, a third gentleman identified uh, named Charles Hall, uh, that he was part of Bill Taylor's gang, that the uh, gang of outlaws are committing these murders. So what, what, what uh, motive is there for this going on? Well, Luna Music says, again, in this amended affidavit, that she's saying in 1894, see how long it is before the evidence starts to come out. And she says, here's another thing, very important. What motive did John, John Music have to commit these murders? Well, remember, he was mad at Selena England over this property, disputed property. Somehow in his warped mind, he still thinks that his family, his father was cheated out of this land that his dad homesteaded, except his dad didn't homestead it and it, and it legally reverted to open occupancy. But John Music uh, doesn't want to believe this. He thinks that the Englands have, uh, have illegally bought this land and cheated his family. And what's more, Selena England, Luna Music uh, t- testifies to this in her affidavit that Selena England rubbed John Music's nose in this and said, save your money, sonny boy. I've got this land. And if you think I'm going to give it to you, you got another thing coming. This is my land and you're going to lump it. And she said this to him several times. And you can imagine that uh, he was a little angry about that. And let's not forget, John Music was present in Montague at that blacksmith shop when Ben Krebs openly threatened the Musics with murder. So here, here he knows in his mind that he's got a great situation to frame someone for these murders. And he stores that away. Then two years after the murder, John Music quickly gets nervous and leaves North Texas, goes to Mexico. He's on his way to Mexico, then gets nervous again, goes back to North Texas, abandons his wife and children, and disappears. Totally disappears. We don't know what happens to him. And so, again, all this time later, Luna Music finally tells the truth. And why doesn't she tell the truth sooner? Because she's afraid of getting killed. She's afraid of getting killed by her husband or some vigilantes. Okay, one other thing I'd like to say about this investigation that Governor Hogg uh, implements at this time. There's a man named Louis Fish, uh, another immigrant from Switzerland who settled there. Uh, Ben Krebs is from Switzerland also. And he's lived a long time there. He He knows Ben Krebs very well. And he says that, in fact, Fish went to the county attorney, Matlock, and said, look, I I know Ben Krebs, he didn't do this. Why don't you put me in jail uh, on some trumped up charge and let's pretend that I was arrested on something and let me talk to Krebs about this to see if, uh, in fact, he did this. And uh, county attorney, Matlock, says, look, Fish, we've got our man. We've got our men. Uh, We don't want any others. We've We've got our suspects. And if you try and raise any trouble, if you try and get any other suspects introduced, I'm going to sick the vigilantes on you. That's a quote. Here we have the county attorney who's in league with the vigilantes in Montague County at that time, the Law and Order League, uh, that we're going we're to sick them on you and shut you up for good if you try and meddle in my case. So 
Uh, we're going with our suspects. In fact, he gets those suspects uh, convicted. Uh, we don't want any other information from that. But the upshot of this investigation is that uh, Matlock falsified the record and that Bill Taylor and Charles Hall were seen by a father and son the day before the murder, uh, riding into Montague County from Indian Territory. In fact, it's verified by Luna Music, John John's wife, that uh, Bill Taylor was in the neighborhood the day of the murders, that he was in fact out hunting with Bill Taylor. And that's probably likely when this uh, scheme to make the attack on the home uh, was concocted. And Bill Taylor may have indeed uh, been lured into it by the fact that John Music could have told him, look, these are wealthy people. They just built their uh, fine new home here. Remember, there's no banks at the time. People hide their money under their mattresses. Uh, and he said, look, I'll get back at the England family for them jipping me out of my dad's land and whatever you and uh, Hall find there, you know, whatever you can rob them from, it's all yours. Uh, why don't we do it? So you have a, literally a smoking gun in this case implicating three different men for the same crime. Wow. So you don't personally believe that Ben Krebs was the killer, right? <laughs> uh, uh, that's, a, that's a good one. Okay. So, um, let, okay. so Governor Hogg actually went to uh, the prison and met Ben Krebs and talked to him. And he took almost two years to study this case and investigate it. Uh, and after they were done, then he had uh, the, the prison board investigate the case. Uh, and this is where the fifth governor, Governor Lubbock, who was the governor during the Civil War, he, he's on the prison board and he and another judge on the board recommend uh, that these guys be fully pardoned. They investigated the crime and they, they came to the conclusion without a doubt that this was a setup. That in fact, these three gentlemen, uh, call them gentlemen, Music, Taylor and Hall, that they falsified the crime scene, that they walked uh, to the Krebs house to implicate them, just did this trail uh, right to the Krebs house to implicate them, and then they all disappear after the crime. And, and the, the uh, pardon board says, would anyone be this dumb to go right from the crime scene back to where you're living? That, that just defies logic. Who in their right mind, no matter how stupid you are, would go right back to your house knowing that the trail right there would, would lead you uh, would lead authorities right to you. So the pardon board recommends to Governor Hogg that he needs to pardon uh, these two guys right away. So uh, he doesn't pardon them right away, but he thinks about it. Then uh, right before his term is to expire, he does what a lot of people does. Uh, he, he does these pardons right before his term ended. And he knows that this is going to generate a firestorm of opinion against him. Uh, how, do, how does he know this? Look what happened to Governor Roberts, who commuted the sentences in 1880. Governor Roberts uh, got death threats. He and Judge Carroll, they were burned in effigy. Uh, people were livid against them. And, you know, threats that Governor Roberts was going to be voted out of office and all that. So Governor Hogg knows that he's going to face a firestorm in his own right, and he wants to do it right. He wants everything neatly buttoned up. Uh, but he does, right before the end of his term, right at the end of 1894, he pardons their sentences, uh, and these two old men uh, move, move to Indian Territory where their families are already living, 
and waiting for them. And why did the families move to, to Indian territory? Because they were threatened constantly with lynching uh, and vigilante gangs while they were living in Texas. Even though their husbands were in prison, uh, they were still pariahs in their local communities and had to move to Indian territory. And this is where the two old men pardoned uh, where they where they go at the end of 1894 to live out the rest of their lives. Uh, now the question of, are they guilty? Are, are the three original suspects, Taylor, Krebs, and Preston guilty? Uh, I'm going to leave that to the to the readers to decide. I think the pre the evidence, uh, and I ran this case down for many years, went to all the crime scenes, uh, thoroughly investigate court transcripts, trial records. I went everywhere. There, uh, it went to the prison, prison museum. Everywhere there was a stone to be unturned, I was there. And I think the case is exhaustively covered here. This is the neat thing about this case is that there are so many plot twists and plot turns over a 20-year period. Five trials, you know, you have four appeals, five Texas governors involved, and the evidence doesn't come to light until the very end. Now, Governor Hogg says when he does his pardons, he goes, may God grant that I'm right. And that's the same thing that uh, Governor Roberts and uh, Judge Carroll say the same thing. You know, we hope that we've done the right thing. So do those people who were there at the time, they say that we're pretty certain that they didn't do it. Are they 100% certain? Uh, I don't think they're 100% certain. I know that Judge Carroll and Governor Roberts are not 100% certain. Uh, I think that Governor Hogg is largely convinced that they're innocent or he wouldn't have pardoned them. But again, the last thing he says is, may God you know, grant that I'm right. Uh, so I leave that to the reader. I, I don't want to spoil, spoil the thing there. I think it's very important that the reader draw their own conclusion. But I, I'm going to point out that these men are pardoned and released from jail. And they, they served their time and they went through a terrible ordeal. And no matter what side of the fence you're on in this deal, uh, it was a terrible thing all the way all the way around. Justice was not served. A young young man died in prison for a crime uh, he may well have not committed. These two gentlemen served. They were put in prison in 1876, didn't get out till 1894. Uh, life at hard labor in those conditions, dark ages, medieval prison conditions, suffering those conditions. They suffered terribly. Was that right? Uh, last thing, I'll, you know, another point, not last thing, you, you have other questions perhaps. During this time period, there's no system of compensation. The state of Texas says, yeah, we were wrong, you're pardoned, we let you out of jail. But we're not, we're not going to give you any money for your attorney's fees or for any wrongs that were done. And we're not going to uh, give you any compensation for any injuries you may have suffered. You know, you're lucky to be out of jail. That's basically the way things were. It wasn't until well in the 20, uh, 20th century that Texas adopted uh, a system of compensation. And even to, you know, today, uh, they're finally giving out sizable, sizable uh, compensation for wrongs done. And remember, they have DNA testing now. They have ballistics testings. They have blood analysis, again, with the DNA, everything. Uh, it's a much different ball of game today than it is back then. So the families were lucky to get their the, their fathers and husbands back and just call it a day. Uh, and these men lived a few more years 
out of prison with their families, and then they died. And this case languished in obscurity for many, many years. Uh, and again, people didn't really know about this. Uh, and uh, it was a total fluke that I ran across the case. And I ran this to, to ground over many years and then developed a case. So it is just a wild case with these plot twists, you know, over these many years, all these things that keep happening that you don't expect. So I do have one final question for you. Selena England's identification of Ben Krebs. She was so certain it was him. Why would she say that if it wasn't? Do you have an explanation for that? Yeah, I do. Um, We get back to Selena England's motive. Back then, uh, legally, uh, there's a lot of loopholes in the deathbed declarations, and they're used a lot of ways, uh, as I show in the book. But basically, back then, uh, people were going to tell the, the truth on their deathbed because they had to meet their maker when they were died. And it was uh, a very, again, uh, religious society, Christian-oriented society. And you know people just wouldn't lie on their deathbed because God's waiting at the other at the other side of the door, uh, and he's going to talk to them about that. So it was largely assumed that people would tell their truth on the deathbed. And, and let's remember also that Selena is, is married to a Methodist minister. She's probably a, a, a very Christian woman. Remember the family said their prayers on the porch right before the murders, and they were murdered in cold blood. You know, a reverend cut down at age 82 years old. Uh, there's a lot of sympathy for her testimony. So, no, uh, it's unimpeachable, right? Well, again, facts in the case are very, very long coming out. And this doesn't come out for many years, but from a number of different sources, from next-door neighbors in Grayson County, Whitesboro, uh, where they lived before they moved to uh, Montague County, uh, neighbors start talking up about her character and the character of the family. Newspapers have reports about uh, Selena, and uh, you have multiple sources, not just one or two, but you have maybe close to seven to 10 people uh, coming out now uh, after the fact and saying, I wouldn't believe one thing she said. She's a habitual liar. She's vindictive. She's mean. Uh, She'll say anything she wants if she's mad at someone. Uh, do not take her testimony under any circumstances. Uh, and she has a motive against Ben Krebs. Uh, ben Krebs threatened uh, her and her husband with violence, threatened to kill them. It could be, uh, I wasn't in her mind when she died. It could be that she says, uh, I'm dying. I got nothing to lose. I can frame Krebs on the way out and no one can do anything about it. Uh, and he's a goner. So in, in fact, uh, her testimony holds up uh, very, very well. It's, it's accepted as evidence uh, and convicts these people. Uh, but is it unimpeachable? Is it untarnished? No, I, d- I definitely think we can't, we can't agree to that. Uh, she did have a motive, and uh, these other witnesses and neighbors after the fact show that uh, she's got problems regarding her testimony. And in the chaos, when she was running for her life, with her daughter. She had heard her daughter accuse Ben Krebs. Yes. And I guess that might have influenced her in, in her identification. A- absolutely. 
Old Ben Krebs is coming to kill us. Mother, Old Ben Krebs, Old Ben Krebs has killed me. So yes, multiple statements by her daughter. And you're run, it's running in through your mind. Who would want to kill us? Why are they running after us? Well, who would do this? Well, just weeks before, Ben Krebs had threatened violence to uh, her and her husband. So, and, and to her son, Isaiah, who, who was in fact uh, gunned down during the killing. So you would think in your mind, you would think a rational person would say, well, yeah, Krebs has a great motive uh, and, he's, and a daughter is identifying him right now. So yes, absolutely. But I, I want to say too about Krebs, the, the evidence is strong uh, that he did not commit the murders. I mean, it's, it's no doubt about it. Uh, very strong there. He wouldn't have been commuted and pardoned if the evidence was strong for the other people. But the question of the rolled up shirt hidden in the attic and that Colt Navy revolver in the house and a, and a uh, identification by Susie, do, those are things that Susie could, could definitely be wrong in her identification and jump to conclusions. I just want to say that all of those were not thoroughly just uh, cleaned up after the fact. But the, the evidence is overwhelming that uh, Krebs, Preston, and Taylor are innocent. But you can't say 100% sure that uh, they didn't do it. So your book is available through the University of Oklahoma Press, correct? Yes, through University of Oklahoma Press uh, and Amazon. Both, both have links to it. Uh, and it's, it's a fabulous case. Uh, I just want to say that the uh, Library Journal, which reviews books for uh, libraries nationwide, just said that this is a book that you, anyone interested in uh, Western history uh, or interested in true crime must have on their library bookshelf. Uh, they really loved it. Ah, oh, that's high praise. Yes. And people can search your name and find out more about your other books as well. Absolutely. Great. Well, this has been so informative. Thank you again for your time. Thank you so much for having me on your program, Eric. Uh, and I really appreciate the uh, time and effort. You, you read the book closely. Thank you. Again, I have been speaking to Glenn Sample Ely. His book is called Murder in Montag, Frontier Justice and Retribution in Texas. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobweb corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis. Have a safe tomorrow. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.